welcome to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoyed this message by Pastor David Eldridge. Mark 5, so Jesus keeps sailing back and forth across the Sea of Galilee. He was in Capernaum, and then he went to this Gentile area. We saw that last week. He cast uh, this whatever legion is, this man who was infested with demons. Jesus sets him free, and now he sails back to the Jewish area of around the Sea of Galilee, a place called Capernaum. That's where he does most of his ministry in Galilee. And there's a theme, there's four stories in a row, and the theme is Jesus's power over fill in the blank. He calms a storm, Jesus's power over nature. He drives demons out of this guy, Jesus's power over Satan and his demonic forces. And today we're gonna see Jesus's power over death and Jesus's power over sickness. So remember, Mark wants us to know that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and part of what it is to be the Messiah means you can actually fight. Like you're, you're stronger than the enemies of God's people. The common understanding is that's flesh and blood. Those are the Roman soldiers who we see walking around. And what Mark is showing us is, no, those aren't actually the real enemies. Jesus can stand up to sin, to stand up to death, can stand up to Satan, and even to kind of the chaotic forces of nature. Jesus is stronger than all of those. So that's what we'll be looking at today, starting in verse 21. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with Jesus, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her that she'll be healed and lived. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around Jesus, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She'd suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can say, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and, trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. And Jesus said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter's dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told them, Don't be afraid. Just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child's not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him, and he went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, at this they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. So this is another one of those stories. This one is kind of a natural story. It's not one that Mark creates where he, he takes a story and sticks it in between another one. And when he does that, we're supposed to understand both in light of each other. So we have the story of Jesus healing or, or raising from the dead, Jairus' daughter. And then in the middle of that is the story of Jesus healing this woman 
who had been bleeding. And so what we want to do is say, what are we supposed to learn from both of those stories kind of smashed together? Again, like a sandwich, you take a bite, you eat the whole thing at once. What, is, what are we supposed to take in from both of these stories? So kind of compare and contrast. The two main people that we're talking about are Jairus and this woman who is bleeding, and they could not be more different from one another. The way they're described, they're at opposite ends of the continuum in terms of Jewish life. We know Jairus's name, Jairus. We know his position. He was a synagogue leader. So that was a highly respected position. It, his job, he wasn't like the, the preacher. Rabbis were the ones that taught. But his job would have been to set everything up and basically kind of run the synagogue. He was responsible for making sure everything happened every Saturday uh, during their time uh, of worship together. Again, it was a, a position of respect it was a position of influence. Most people think he was probably pretty well-to-do. Uh, in addition to that, he would have been at the center of, of uh, community life. Uh, Jairus had a, a wife and at least one daughter. And then on the other end, we have this woman. We never even get her name. She's described solely based on her physical condition. She's this woman who is, who is bleeding. Uh, and, and that condition, we'll just call it uterine bleeding and move on. It's, um, it made her unclean. So not dirty or disgusting or evil, but ceremonially unclean. And so uh, she, she would have been ostracized. She was unclean, so she couldn't, she couldn't go to the temple for sure. But even kind of day-to-day life, uh, if she touched you, then you became unclean. It, we've been doing this for the past couple of years in a way. If you know, somebody gets COVID and you don't want to be around them because you don't want to get... Um, you don't want to have to quarantine for five days. That's her life for 12 years. Nobody wants to be around her because if she touches them, then they've got to be quarantined till that night for the rest of the day. And they have to take a ceremonial bath and then they can re-engage in life. And if she touches something and then you touch that thing, the same thing happens. You got to quarantine for the rest of the day. So nobody wants to be around her. They may pity her. They may actually love her. They just don't want to be around her. Again, it's just like you when you know somebody's got COVID. You may love them, but you're like, I got things to do. I can't afford to have to stay in my house for a week after being around you. And for them, it's more than just convenience. It's religious conviction. She's unclean and, and she, that's contagious. And I don't want to become unclean where then I can't do anything. I've got to basically just go sit in my room for the rest of the day and then take a bath. So that, that's her life for for 12 years, she's an outcast. Most likely, she, if she had a family, it's broken. Most likely, she didn't. A man would not have married a woman in this condition. He, again, he would not be allowed to, to sleep with her. So there's no chance for children. And so a guy, a, a man's not, in this culture, a man's not going to marry a woman like that. And, and even if a man had married her, this was actually grounds for divorce. So most likely, she's, she's alone, not just in terms of family, but also in terms of community. No place in the religious life or social life of her community. She's broke. She spent everything she had on doctors and she's only gotten worse. The word that's used to describe her suffering in verse 29 and verse 34, it's the word for scourging or, 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 or being whipped. So it's, if you can remember back when you, if your parents did this, if you got spanked, um, it's like the, it's the physical pain plus the shame. That's what she has. There's the physical pain of her condition plus the embarrassment, the humiliation, the shame of being cut off from everyone. That's the word used to describe her condition. She's in an awful, awful spot. Jairus and her can't be more different socially. 
but they have two things in common. They're both desperate. Jairus has a 12-year-old daughter who's dying, and we would translate that word as on death's door or hanging on by a thread. She's in her last hours when Jairus comes to Jesus. Desperate. Her, the, the woman's situation, it may not be as acute. There's no indication that she was about to die, but it's chronic. Again, 12 years. Like, so think back to 2010. That's 12 years. Think about all the things you've done, all the memories you have, and now cut out everyone that involves another person. Whatever you have left, that's her life for the last 12 years. She, there's nothing there. A life of complete isolation and then whatever physical pain is associated with her condition. She's hopeless at this point. She spent everything she had trying to get better and she, she can't. Her situation's desperate. It's a different kind of desperate, but it's still desperate. And they both, they have that in common. And they have in common, they believe Jesus can help them. They both believe that and they act on that belief. So they both approach Jesus because they're both desperate and they believe he can help. Jairus is thinking, if you can just put your hands on my daughter, then she'll be healed. And this woman, when she hears about Jesus, I'm thinking maybe she hears Jairus and Jesus exchange and she's thinking, oh, I wonder if he could help me too. She's thinking if I can just, if I can just touch the, the edge of his robe, then I'll be healed. And so they both approach Jesus, but they approach him in very different ways. Jairus approaches in a an open, maybe we'd say public way. If we look at it, we might say it kind of looks like the right way that you would do this. You would, you know, you come to Jesus kind of face to face and then he falls in before his feet in humility and he's basically begging Jesus to help him. And we, we've seen that before throughout Mark and you kind of check the box. Yeah, that, that's probably what that should look like. Her approach is very different. It's, it's secretive maybe is the word that we would use. Uh, she's, in my mind, she's kind of sneaking up behind him. That's the way I see it. Maybe that's not the case. But, you know, there's a crowd around him and she's kind of working her way through the crowd. And Jesus would, uh, he would have worn like a, a tunic and then a cloak on top of it. And the cloak he would have wrapped around him. And in the common way that a man would wrap that cloak around him, there were four tassels on the corners. You can see that. That's a, that's a picture of uh, the catacombs in Rome from 300 uh, about 300 AD, that's kind of what guys were wearing then. And that uh, one of those tassels would have hung behind Jesus when he walked. And that maybe that's what she was reaching out to grab. A Jewish man, his cloak would have those tassels on. It was commanded in the Old Testament. And so that's probably what she was reaching out to grab. Maybe in a lot of the pictures you see, she's, she's on the ground. The, maybe that tassel was hanging down kind of low. And so maybe she was kind of working her way through the crowd. And then she gets close and she kind of falls down and and grabs the tassel. I don't know exactly what that looks like, but they both approach Jesus. So up to this point, they're walking parallel paths, Jairus and this woman, but now their paths intersect. And they, they don't just intersect. What this woman does, it, it greatly impacts Jairus. So she reaches out and grabs Jesus's tassel and something happens and Jesus knows it and so does she. She immediately feels like, whoa, I'm, I'm healed. I'm not bleeding anymore. What I've experienced for the last 12 years, I'm not experiencing that anymore. That's what she wanted and that's what she gets. But, but Jesus also knows. It's, the, it's a weird phrase. He knows that power has left him. He knows that someone has touched him in faith and that they've been healed. And so he stops. And for this woman, that's the nightmare. 
She doesn't want to be the center of attention. But that's what's going on. I don't know if this is one of those things where 10 seconds feels like 10 minutes or it really is 10 minutes with him looking around going, who touched me? And the disciples are like, Jesus, they're all touching you. Like they're, they're, there's a, it's, a, it's a crowd, mob is probably not the best word, but it's a, it's a crowd and they're all pressing against each other. This, the, the disciples are not secret service who are creating a perimeter around Jesus. Everybody is on him as he's walking through. And so they're going, everybody's touching you. How can you ask who's touching you? But the way she touched him is different. And remember, she doesn't even touch his body. She's just touching the tassel of his robe. But he knows she touched him in faith. Someone touched him in faith because, that he, he, again, he senses, he senses power has gone from him to her. And so he stops and he's looking around and he keeps looking around, says, who touched me? And finally, again, whether it's 10 seconds or 10 minutes, she, she falls at his feet just like Jairus did and she's scared. And rightfully so, she's scared. We talked about this last week. When you experience power, and you don't know if the source of that power is good and trustworthy, fear is a normal response. The same power that helped you can also hurt you. You've come into contact with someone who's stronger than you. And in this case, well, that strength was to your benefit. You were healed. But if, again, if the person who is strong is either not good or not trustworthy, then that power could just as well be used against you. So she's afraid. There's no real indication that she has any connection with Jesus prior to that. It says when she heard about Jesus, then she got in the crowd. So again, I wonder if she just heard about him that day. If she just heard about Jesus when Jairus is saying, hey, can you come to my house? And Jesus says, yes. Maybe, his, maybe she knows something about him reputationally, but there's no indication that she has any kind of connection to him. She doesn't know. And so she falls at his feet and she tells the whole story. And that's when things get really scary for her. Because everybody she touched working through the crowd, now they all got to be quarantined. So even if there were people like maybe, again, maybe there was pity for her in the community. Maybe people felt sorry for her. Maybe there's compassion. Maybe there was genuine love, but they're frustrated because whatever it is that they were going to do that day, they're not doing now. They're going home and they got to be there until the nighttime and they got to go take a bath. So she's worried. Well, how are people going to respond? And again, even more so, She's grabbed onto this holy man, and now he's unclean as well. And she doesn't know how he's going to respond. I don't think that she was intending to do anything to disrupt what Jesus was doing with Jairus at all. I think she was trying to get in and get out unseen. She lives her life on the fringe, and she does not want to be in the center. And now Jesus has put a spotlight on her, and I think she's dying under it. I don't think she was trying to mess with Jairus' daughter. I don't think she was doing that, but it could be the case that now Jesus is unclean. Well, he can't go to Jairus' house now. He can't lay hands on her now. Could be. She doesn't know. So she's scared when she's telling the story. And Jesus' response to her, would um, nothing that she saw coming. She was hoping to be healed and leave. And he calls time out, puts a spotlight on her, has her share, and then his response is phenomenal. He calls her daughter. When was the last time she heard that? Pulls her into relationship. Daughter, your faith has healed you. This isn't magic. Your faith has healed you. Go in peace. That's a huge word in the Bible. Peace, it's not the absence of conflict. It's an all-encompassing well-being, an all-encompassing wholeness. He's speaking to every area of her life that's been touched by this 
disease. Go in peace. Go in wholeness and well-being. Be freed from your suffering. And again, he uses that word, that scourging, whipping, that punishment kind of word. You're freed from all of that. That's how you felt. And you're free from that. No more pain and no more shame. Way more than what she could have asked for and way better. She hasn't just been physically healed. She's been restored to community and relationship. But if you're Jairus, even if you're the best guy in the world, think about what you're doing the whole time. When Jesus stops, like if it's me and I'm Jairus and I get up in the morning and I hear Jesus and his disciples have landed in my town and I know my daughter is on death's door and I'm thinking he's my last chance. In my mind, if I actually get him to say yes, I'm thinking like I'm starting to feel hopeful again. I'm like, well, he said he's gonna come. That would have been the hard part, would be getting to Jesus. I don't know what his agenda is. I don't know what he's got on schedule. He doesn't know me. And so for me to go to him and say, will you come and help? If he actually says yes, then I'm thinking I'm, I'm gold at that point. Like that, that would have been the hard thing. And so after Jairus has done that and Jesus has changed whatever his plans were and redirected and gone to Jairus' house, I'm thinking, all right, we're, we're kind of we're, we're home free. We just got to get there. We just need to get there before my daughter dies and, and everything's going to be okay. And so then when he stops, again, even if to me, even if I'm the best hearted guy in the world, and even if I, maybe I know who this woman is, maybe part of my job was actually to make sure she didn't come into the synagogue until she was clean. Not necessarily in a rude way. I'm just, I'm just enforcing the rules. I don't know if he knew her or not. But even if he does, and even if he has compassion for her, any of those things, again, like her, him, Jesus spending time with her, it's like clock's ticking. We've got to get home. Again, I, I hate it for you, but you've kind of been in this position for 12 years. You're going to be okay. What, what's another couple of hours? My daughter is literally about to die. And who knows how long it takes her to tell her whole story? Who knows? Maybe she's brief. I'm wondering. She, had, she might not have talked to anybody for 12 years. She may have had a lot to share. I mean, who knows how long it takes for her to do that. And the whole time, you're Jairus and your foot's tapping and you're, you know, you're like, you know, you're doing all of those things, trying to move this thing along. And then your worst nightmare, somebody comes from your house and says, your daughter's died. And you're devastated all over again. It's like I, your hope is up because Jesus is coming to your house. And then you're devastated because... Your daughter dies on the way. Jesus overhears and he says, don't be afraid, which is an interesting phrase. I've been around a lot of people at that life death point and I've never thought don't be afraid as a, something to say after someone has died. But, but that's what Jesus says, don't be afraid, just believe. And then they continue on to Jairus' house and for whatever reason, he takes just his inner circle, Peter, James, and John, and they get there and there's this commotion. There were, there were people and their job was to mourn so if someone in your family died, you would hire people, professional mourners to come and kind of lead the lament. They're already there doing their thing. And when Jesus gets there, he says, she's not dead. Although she is, she's just asleep. I think what he's saying is it's just a euphemism. It's a, it's a way of saying this is temporary. And they go in and he raises the girl from the dead. He uses that phrase, Talitha kum. That's not a magic formula. It's Aramaic. If your Bible has Jesus' words in red, they all should be in Aramaic. That's the language that he spoke. I don't know. We don't know why Mark didn't translate 
those two words into Greek like he did everything else, but he doesn't. So again, nothing magic. You don't have to go around saying Talitha kum to people. Like there's nothing. It's just, it's just another language that Jesus used. And, and the girl gets up. He's 12 years old and he starts walking around. He says, give her something to eat. Again, it just shows that she has fully recovered. And then that messianic secret that we talked about last week, Jesus says, don't say anything. Obviously, if you've got professional mourners in your front yard, then everybody knows the girl's dead. And so when she's walking around, people are going to know something's happening. I think Jesus is saying, just can I get out of town first? Like, just let me get out before you, let every, before you tell everybody. And so that, 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 that's it. There's this bookend story. Jairus, the woman, Jairus. So what are we supposed to take from that? One of the things is uh, Jesus, uh, he responds to both this woman and to Jairus. Even though they're very different people. This, if there's anything in you that, ta- that thinks I've got to be worthy for Jesus to minister to me or help me or listen to me or respond to me. These two stories say no. If all we had was Jairus, we may think, well, well, Jesus responds to people who have it all together. That's who he responds to. He responds to good people. That's what Jairus, he's a pillar of the community. That's who he responds to. But then we have the story of the woman that says not so much. If we, and if all we have is the story of the woman, we may, we may think, well, Jesus only responds to people who are down and out. You've got to be like desperate, desperate, desperate in order for him, pitiful, pathetic in order for him to respond to you. But then we have the story of Jairus. And so what we see there is it doesn't matter. There's no such thing as worthiness, whatever that means. Jesus is responding to them not based on who they are or, or their station or, or how, whether their life is a mess or whether they're, they've got it all together. What he's responding to is, is their faith. That's what he's responding to. They, they both believe that Jesus can help them. And remember, we've said belief, it's not just thinking something. Faith in the Bible is trust. And both of them express that trust by approaching Jesus. I've wondered about Jairus as a synagogue leader. So front row of the synagogue are the Pharisees. That's who gets the best seats in the house. Highly respected men. And we already have seen that some of them have decided Jesus is a fraud and that he's demon-possessed. How hard would it be for Jairus to go to Jesus knowing these guys who he sees every Saturday and they're sitting in the front of the synagogue, they're guys that he respects. They're going, what, why would you do that? We've already told you about him. You gotta steer away from that guy. And Jairus is going to him. So I think there's some risk involved for Jairus. And we've already talked about the risk for the woman. Everybody she touches is becoming unclean. She's risking becoming even more of a pariah than she already is. But they believe. And that's what Jesus is responding to. He's responding to their faith, their trust that he can actually help them. And so we take both of those things away. There's no such thing, you know, people sometimes say to me because of my job, you have a direct line to God. I absolutely do. And you have the same direct line to God. His name is Jesus. We all have the same access. It doesn't matter what my job is or your job is. It doesn't matter whether I've got it together or you've got it together, where I'm a mess or you're, none of those things matter. He's responding to faith, not to station, not to status, not to works. He's responding to faith. And we see the power he has over both sickness and death. And for some of you, that's super encouraging. You can put yourself in Jairus' shoes right now and say, I'm in a crisis. I'm in this this acute, 
kind of do or die moment. I need help. And this story encourages me. Some of you may, you can put yourself in the shoes of this woman and say, I've had this chronic issue for years. And it's super encouraging to know that that doesn't, my past doesn't necessarily have to be my future, that Jesus can, can break in and can change things. And, and this, these stories start hoping you. And, and for some of you, that's not the case at all. It agitates you. As soon as we started reading, you were going, you, you were stewing because your experience does not line up with this story. You're thinking in your own life and going, well, I have approached him. I have reached out and I have grabbed the robe and nothing happened. I've fallen at his feet. I've asked him to come help. Nothing's changing. So what do we do about that? What are our options? We don't have time to talk about all that there is to say about healing, but just a few things I want you to think about as we close this morning and, and move into a time where we are going to take, take a minute and pray for those who would want, want prayer. When I think about healing and praying for healing specifically, there's three ways that I think God heals. One is supernaturally, one is naturally, and honestly, one is through death. That, doesn't, that feels like a preacher trick. So we'll talk about that one at the last. Supernaturally, that's what we think of. That's what we read in the Gospels. Jesus just says you're healed, and then all of a sudden, the part, it's done. She quit bleeding and she's great. It's, a, it's instant, it's full, it, God gets all the credit. Usually when we're thinking about praying for healing, that's what we're thinking about, this supernatural, direct, immediate intervention from God. And he absolutely still does that today. There are testimonies in this church of people who've been healed in that kind of miraculous, supernatural way. Oftentimes, God heals naturally. He, he heals indirectly, through things he's given us. If you, I mean, just think about your own body and how many bumps and bruises and scrapes and broken bones and injuries and infections and viruses. Think of all of that stuff that you've recovered from. It's amazing, these bodies that we have. When your bones break, they grow back together. What? Tree branches don't do that. It's amazing, isn't it? And he's given all of us, those things. I think about this, pat, this line in Matthew 5 where Jesus says, God, the Father, God, he causes the sun to rise on the, the, the righteous and the wicked and the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. If he's speaking to an agrarian society, I've got a, uh, I've got a farm and my next door neighbor has a farm and I'm a righteous, God-fearing, law-observing man and he's not. He's wicked and he's unrighteous and he's evil. But when the sun comes up, we both get the benefit. And when it rains, we both get the benefit. The sun doesn't stop at my property line and the rain doesn't end at my fence. It's the kindness and the mercy and grace of God. And, and so there's a, there's a, play, a point in which for, for healing, there are people that are, are wicked. And maybe even us before we knew Jesus, we, we were healed. Our bodies still worked. We recovered. Antibiotics still worked for us, whether we were following Jesus or not. There's a, there's, a, there's a point, again, which God heals naturally. And when we pray, it can enhance those natural means. But there's plenty of people at Wellstar right now who are stubbornly resisting the Lord. And they're going to walk out of that place healthy. Because a knee replacement still works. Because God is kind and he's generous and he's merciful. So God heals us supernaturally, and he also heals us naturally, whether that's through medicine or through doctors or when you, you know, whatever, burn the oil of whatever in your diffuser. And what, those, he uses that stuff. 
Whatever those things are, he uses those things to heal us. And there are times, and this will actually be the case for almost all of us, we're all going to die. And for most of us, there'll be a sickness that leads to our death. We all kind of think, oh, I just, I hope I die. We all want to die in our sleep. Most of us, we're not going to. For most of us, there's going to be a sickness that leads to death. And death for us, Jesus has completely reversed it. Prior to his resurrection, death was the end. When you died, you were done. And now it's a doorway. If you're following Jesus, death is just, it's a step from this life into a better one. And so that's, that healing is full and that healing is permanent. Jairus' daughter, she's going to die again. Maybe it's 30 years, maybe it's 40 years. She's going to die again. This woman who was healed, she's still going to die. Death is a reality for all of us, and God uses that to, to, to transition us from this life to the next. And in that next life, at the resurrection of the dead, we'll get a new body that won't ever be touched by sickness anymore. And again, that's, that's an easy thing to say when the person dying is suffering or when we would say they've lived a long and full life. It's more difficult when those things are not the case. To say that God heals through death is not to say we don't grieve when someone has died. We absolutely do. But I think there does, as, as, as a believing community and as individual Christians, I think there does need to be a recognition that death is a, is a doorway for us into a better life. And that sometimes... That's the way God chooses to heal. And again, for, for many of us, that will be our experience. There will be, a, there, there will be a, an illness, a sickness for us that's going, to, that's going to end in death. And that is our healing from that. My dad died of cancer. That was the, that's what took him from this life to the next. So in that sense, like he wasn't healed this side of heaven. Death brought him into heaven. Does that make sense? So, but what about all the times where those things aren't the case? There are times where God doesn't heal and I don't wanna pretend that they're not. So what do we do about that? You're the woman, it's been 12 years. You're not getting any better. You're praying, you're just like her. You've gone to everybody. You've gone to medical doctors who have doing traditional medicine. You've gone to naturopathic doctors. You've gone to witch doctors. You've gone to everybody trying to see who can help me and nobody can and you're frustrated, you spent a bunch of money, maybe you're getting worse, what do you do? What do you do? How do we wrestle with that? And it's easy to say, well, something's wrong with me. I'm not, I haven't grabbed the robe yet. And maybe for some of you, you're thinking like Jairus, you're thinking, why even bother him anymore? What's done's done. I don't have, you know, I, I can't tell you why, I don't know. I don't know why, you're not gonna know why. I'm not, like, those, are, those aren't the questions that get answered for us. I do wanna give you a couple of things to think about. So this is 2 Corinthians 10. I think the, it's on the screen behind me. So this is Paul talking. In order to keep me from, being, from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. So nobody knows what that thorn in the flesh is. Nobody, because Paul never tells us. So some people see it's maybe a physical condition, probably maybe had something with his eyes or some evidence from his writing that he, he had this eye condition. 
that caused him pain. He couldn't see. Some people think it was a demonic influence because it's called a messenger of Satan. Some people think it was people who were persecuting him and causing him a hard time. I don't know. I lean towards the eye thing. That's what I would think, but it doesn't matter. The bottom line is he was suffering and he asked God to fix it and God didn't. He was in pain, some level, and he said, God, take this away. And God said, no. And so you're in good company if that's how you feel. If, you're, if you have a chronic condition and you're going, I, I've asked and, and God, it's not changing. You're in good company and some things that you can learn from Paul. I would say one, broaden your view. God, how do you wanna use this to make me more like Jesus? That's a hard question to ask. For Paul, he says, he gave it to me to keep me humble. If you go back and you read the two chapters before this statement, he's talking about all these incredible things that he's seen and experienced. And he's saying, in order to keep my feet on the ground, I have this messenger of Satan. That doesn't mean that you're sick in order to keep you humble. But ask the Lord, how do you want to use this to make me more like Jesus? Ask the question. I would say, in addition to that, ask for grace, this kind of sufficient grace. God, I don't want my whole life to be defined by whatever this condition is. I want my life to be defined by my relationship with you. I get it. You're made perfect in my weakness. My weakness, you're strong. I need more grace. My life is dominated by this, and I don't want that to be the case. And the last thing I would say is don't quit. Easy for me to say. Some of the people in the... Some of the people I love most have chronic conditions. And it's hard to watch. And I know there are times where they can't. They can't pray. I know that. I get it. It's too hard. Get your hopes up. It's difficult. For some of you, you feel like every time I pray, honestly, I take a step back. I don't want to do it anymore. Like, and I get that. The rest of us, we can pray for you, maybe without even letting you know. And, and, and for you, if that's you, I would say just, if there's a way for you to not quit, every time there's an opportunity, you don't have to come forward. But sometimes, occasionally, I would say just don't, don't quit. 12 years is a long time. There's a woman in Luke, 18 years. There's a guy in John his whole life. So again, easy for me to say. But I would just encourage you, don't close the door completely. I get it that you don't want to ask every day because it, it just becomes too difficult. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. Maybe let a couple of people know who will pray for you on a regular basis, not necessarily even in your presence. Let me know. And I will. And I mean that. But for you, just don't, if I could tell you one thing. Just don't quit. Two things that we know are true. God is always good. And nothing is too difficult for him. Let's pray. Ministry teams, you guys can come up. There's oil in those baskets if y'all would grab some of that. So here's what we're going to do. You already knew the invitation we got started. We want to pray. We want to pray for everyone who desires prayer. So if you may be like that woman, you've got a chronic condition, and maybe today is the day that you want to say, I'm going to ask the Lord to heal me. 
for the first time or for the hundredth time, but I'm going to ask. And we'd invite you forward. And the people up here, the ministry teams are going to take that oil and make a cross on your hand. And they're going to pray really simply. We don't think God hears us because we yell really loud. We don't think God hears us because we say, again, there is no magic formula. Nobody's going to be speaking Aramaic. They're just going to ask God to heal you. We're going to approach like Jairus approached in humility. We're going to approach like this woman approached boldly. And we're going to ask God to heal. Your condition may be acute. Your condition may be chronic. Either way, we want to pray. And we want to ask God to heal you. And also, I want to create another category. If you're someone in in your deepest heart, you would say, I just, I don't know. This may just be my thing. This is just my life. And, And you're saying it from a place of resignation. You've given up hope. We want to pray for you, and what we're going to pray for you is that God would restore your hope and that you would, just, you would know what that, that looks like for you, that you, again, wouldn't have to shut down this part of your heart. That God would renew that within you. So, Holy Spirit, would you come? We confess we're not, we're not healers. That's not our thing. Jesus, you're the healer. And so we just ask you to come and to move among your people, those who are in their living rooms and those who are in this room, people who've asked a hundred times and people who this is the first time, people who have conditions that are incredibly serious, even life-threatening, and people who have conditions that are just annoying and irritating. We pray that you would come and that you would display your power and your goodness in this place. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. Thank you.